Hello, and welcome to Conference Room C, where the culture meets. I'm your host, Dr. Amina Gilliard-James, and today's topic is Walk It Like You Talk It. In the workspace, there are often subtle and sometimes not so subtle inequalities. In my research of institutionalized discrimination, where the workplace is the institution, I came across this term, which was popularized by Acker more than a decade ago at this point. Inequality regimes are defined as interrelated practices, processes, actions, and meanings that result in and maintain class, gender, and racial inequalities. And I would expand this definition to include inequalities that exist between the dominant culture in an organization and all protected classes. What this theory is really saying in non-academic language is that there can be institutionalized barriers, these seemingly mystical things that are embedded deep into the culture of organizations. And what these barriers do is keep a group or groups oppressed in some way while simultaneously elevating others. Now let's talk briefly about young Black professionals who may have had experiences with real-life inequality regimes. What does this look like in operation? Well, first, I have to note that this phenomenon is not unique to workspaces that are predominantly white. Though inequalities can seem more apparent in those places because Black employees stick out like a sore thumb, these institutionalized barriers that Acker described can also occur in so-called diverse organizations. They look like culturally insensitive rhetoric, intentional and unintentional exclusion from social groups. It looks like having all of one group concentrated at the leadership levels while other groups hold the majority of lower level positions. So what can we do to rid workspaces of these regimes, these institutionalized barriers? Well, over time, this concept of allies or workplace advocates have come to the forefront and folks are talking more about the need for safe spaces. But a recent experience I had at a learning event had me questioning all of this and I really don't know what the vibe is anymore. So this is what happened. I was at a diversity training and we were talking about authenticity and how sometimes professionals have been traditionally marginalized in the workplace and they feel like they have to hide parts of their identity, whether it be their dress, speech, etc. Someone in the room expressed challenges that they have had when deciding whether to dress in certain styles of clothing or wear her hair a certain way. She, a naturally curly-haired Black woman, said something like, I used to feel like I had to change my hair, straighten it just to fit in and look more professional. A white woman at the event said under her breath in a not very nice, very certain way, no one is asking you to do that. I was floored. My mouth literally fell open. I couldn't believe that in the type of learning event this was, that a woman was being so culturally insensitive. And secondly, do folks not understand the idea of systemic discrimination or microaggressions? The idea that no one has to literally ask you to do something or not to do something to send the message that you should or shouldn't. So that experience really got me to thinking. It's one thing to say you support Black professionals in the workplace and leadership and professional endeavors, but what does that actually look like? How does support become less of a noun, a thing you just say, and more of an action word? How deep do you have to go in attempting to understand the experiences of your Black colleagues to really be the advocate they sometimes need? What makes a safe space safe in the workplace and like who's allowed in these spaces? Let's get into it. With me in the conference room, I have two amazingly talented people 
to discuss how to walk it like you talk it. Chris Armstrong is the co-owner of Veritas Culture and a former culture executive. He is highly sought after as a consultant, facilitator, speaker, and coach. Chris, thanks for stepping into the conference room. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the dialogue. Awesome. With us, we also have Veronica Lawrence. She is a 24-year Navy veteran who specializes in diversity and inclusion, specifically creating safe environments. During her tenure in the Navy, Veronica's focus was achieving workplace environments where all members of the team were able to collaborate and make contributions based on merit, skills, and performance. Veronica, so happy you could join us. How are you today? I'm doing fine, thank you. So, you both heard my story. So I just want to start there. What is the current vibe? What's in the air when it comes to diversity and inclusion as it relates to racial diversity and inequalities? Is it just like passe or a thing of the past? Are we in a post-workplace discrimination era, if you will? Is this what people are kind of thinking? Am I tripping for reacting the way I did to the woman who made that comment? What are your thoughts? I think there's a couple things. I think we are in an era of movements and counter-movements. So I do think there's a lot more movements now than there were several years ago in a positive direction. But what's also happening is the people who don't want that change or who don't believe there needs to be change are forming their own counter-movements. And uh, let Veronica lean in. The only other thing I will say, and obviously we can have more sort of thorough dialogue, is your story, you're not tripping. Number one, as you said so eloquently, people don't have to tell someone how they're supposed to dress in order for them to feel like they can only dress a certain way. This reminds me of when someone says, we're not racist. I don't say the N-word. Or we don't have a race issue. Our workforce composition matches the composition of Blacks and African-Americans in the country, to which I would always ask, but what percentage of Blacks and African-Americans in the workplace are either in leadership positions or in non-mission support positions? It's just naive. I don't think you're tripping at all. I think you're hitting on what we don't often pay attention to, which is the supposed allies not really even having the depth of understanding to be allies. Chris, you mentioned the movements and the counter-movements. What gives way, in your opinion, to these counter-movements? I think two things. Fear is at the root of it. So people who look at the change and particularly look at people who look like them as part of the allies. So if you're a Caucasian and you see other Caucasians joining the movement to try to help, in this case, Black and African Americans, you're going to fear because you always perceive that someone else's gain is your loss. And I think the other root issue, quite frankly, which we don't often want to say, is racism. And we'll call it different things. But the reality is, if you don't perceive that people, if given the same opportunities, have the same potential, then you're going to see any sort of movement as, oh, affirmative action. Oh, we're lowering our standards. But what you're really saying under your breath is, I don't think they can do what we can do. So I think it's racism and I think it's fear. And I have to say, Chris, I appreciate you just calling out these things by their actual names, because like you said, we can call them a multitude of things, but you know, to get to the root issue, it's better to just be transparent and call an apple an apple if that's what it is. Veronica, you want to jump in? Yeah, I do. I was listening to your story and I'm listening in general. I think that in the military, it's a lot easier for those behaviors that marginalize or that reject an image or what's susceptible, right? And I don't think you're out of sorts or you're speaking out of sorts when you say this is an issue. I think we're grownups and we still blame peekaboo. And I say that in a funny way, but not funny because if we don't see it, then it must not be there. And it's disturbing in many ways to see the group think 
that people are looking for in the workspace, right? So if you don't think like us, you must be against us. And then if people come from different environments, different demographics, by nature, they have a different opinion. And it's, we don't have those work environments where we can have those conversations and call things like Chris called them out. It's not a safe space to have those conversations. And I'll share with you, I had two cases a while back. They've been adjudicated. But in both of them, African-Americans were told, a young man was told, well, you have dreadlocks. Therefore, because of the way you wear your hairstyle, you're not going to be considered for a promotion or no one's going to take you seriously. This actually was said. And then there was a female who decided to go natural. Her hair was different. It wasn't unkept. And she was told she couldn't get an award because she can't be the face of the organization. So I do think this is an issue, a big issue in general. Yes. And Veronica, you mentioned that in the military, the military culture where you spent 24 years, that it's just, it's easier to kind of get some justice, if you will, for that type of marginalization. Maybe easier is not the word, but there are reprimands that are used. So what do you think it is about the military culture that may make it a bit, I don't want to say easy, but a bit, there's more formal processes or just more of a culture of wanting to make sure that those things aren't upheld? I think the military has a great process in place. What I do believe, however, is that we don't want to call it what it is. If we start treating an African-American or a minority differently, we'll say, oh, maybe it's fraternization. It is not discrimination. And I call it, it's a guise, right? You only happen to have a fraternization relationship with someone because they look like you and they think like you, and they walk like you, and they talk like you. And so a lot of people are in denial. And one of the impairments to adjudicating these cases fairly is the denial that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. It could be a top performer, and the day that this becomes an issue, that person becomes, no, it's because they're bad performers. So we hide it. I don't meet people like Chris who go out and say, you know what, you have a problem, and I see the track record that everybody you have a problem with, look a certain way. That'll be a scary conversation to have, I think, for us. Yeah, as I'm listening, I'm taking notes and I just added denial to Chris's fear and racism as these kind of things that give way to counter movements because acting like something's not happening when it is can be just as damaging as being an active participant. And so Veronica, you mentioned safe space briefly. So I'll start with Chris and we'll get into that conversation. So Chris, can you touch on the importance of safe space in the workplace and what are some of the attributes or signs that a space is safe? The importance I can't overstate. Either people can be who they are, bring their authentic self, or work is going to be work in two different ways. We already pay people to do whatever their job is. We're now also paying them to be someone that they're not. And not only does that stifle internal growth for somebody, it also keeps the supremacy of whatever the majority is. So if people don't have to be who they are, and if women have to adjust, if Blacks and African-Americans have to adjust, I never have to. So if I put myself there as a white, heterosexual, able-bodied male, and people don't have a safe space, I don't ever have to adjust because everybody's adjusting to me. So to mm -hmm. me, the importance of a safe space is, as long as there's no safe spaces, people will always adjust, and I will always be, not me specifically, but my kind, my race, my gender will always be the dominant form and we will never have equality, which is really what all this is. Diversity and inclusion has to start with equality and equity. That's at the root of it, quite frankly. I've seen a few safe spaces when I've done culture assessments and I'll tell you they have three things in common. 
Number one, what I call the C3 reality. And that is that the leadership by and large, not everybody, but by and large, see it as a problem and see it as their problem to resolve. So I love Veronica's point about denial. If you have denial, you don't see it. And if you don't see it, you don't think there's a problem. Number two, what they have is diversity at the top. So anytime I hear somebody say, we have diversity, we all went to the different colleges, we all think differently, BS. Diversity is diversity of race, gender, and everything else. Sexual orientation is not just diversity of thought. So they had diversity at the top. The third thing that they had was accountability. And what I mean by that is when the nuances came up where somebody didn't feel safe, they were nipped in the butt right then and there. To Veronica's point, it wasn't sort of looked at as, oh, maybe it's just a fraternization issue. Oh, maybe they didn't mean what they said. You know how Jake is. That's just how Jake is. No, you have to have accountability. You have to actually have diversity and you have to see it. Veronica? I would like to say that sadly, I'm less fortunate on seeing those type of environments because I'm in an environment where people, it's a very hierarchy is, you know, the word of the day. And so I see people trying to find a safe space to navigate, to be able to express without crossing any lines and without ruffling any feathers. And so I have made it my job to discuss the fact that when I walk in as a stranger into your organization and they tell me all the issues with diversity and inclusion, and when the leadership says, tell me exactly why they don't trust me, and you walk in in 10 seconds and they tell you, and my question back to them is, what kind of environment are you creating where they trust a stranger that they don't trust you to have that conversation? So I've seen a little bit of the opposite that Chris has seen where people are like upset that they would talk to someone else rather than talk to the leadership. And they don't understand or don't see the need to create this space because in, quite honestly, it doesn't affect them unless it's them. Mm-hmm. I have people tell me, I say whatever I want to say, there's no issues. Why can't they feel the same way? So not seeing the need for that is part of the problem from my experience. So I really like what Chris was saying also about the C3 and how he can tell that yep. an organization is primed for having safe spaces. But then what Veronica's saying has me thinking, maybe this is, maybe this isn't, maybe safe spaces are or aren't as prevalent as we think they are in organizations. And so how do we change this? How can you take an organization, as Chris said, where there's a dominant culture that never really had to adjust and help it become one that sees the value and importance of creating safe spaces? Do you want to start first, Veronica? Do you want me to start? Why don't you start first? I keep starting first. I like it as five parts because I'm not really sure that I had the right answer. I love that inclusive deference, Chris. Love it. (laughs) So I think what we're seeing in the country is a good starting point. So one of the things I like about what's happening in our country, despite the divisiveness, is the movements again. So I've probably facilitated 170 culture assessments, most of them diversity inclusion related. And the only times that we saw change was when it wasn't me and my partner in crime it's where we take hook the people who are already part of the movement and help to forge a confidence in themselves and to some degree an ability to facilitate, but more so a confidence because they're better than they think they are, number one, and make their movement matter beyond just the groundswell. So if you're going to change culture, which is collective regard, you're going to have to let the collective be part of the movement. And what you end up doing is you end up propping up very intentionally the movement you put the leadership in the background, you put human resources in the background, you put people like us in the background. If you're going to bring in an outsider, bring us in, fine, but make us background noise. We're just the people sort of helping them shape. Because the other thing I will tell you that I thought about with what Veronica said was, 
I think it becomes a lot easier for people who look like me to hear people who look like me, but that's not necessarily good. So they might be able to relate to me better, but if I walk out the door and they stop talking because there's not people like me, I want to empower the people who don't look like me. I want to empower the people that are part of the workforce, who are part of the movement, put them in the forefront so that that becomes the new normal and so that they start shaking and baking all of the policy changes, all the training changes, all of the hiring changes, because that is what will stick and that's what we're seeing in this country. People are getting uncomfortable. Oh, well, be comfortable with being uncomfortable like we always tell people. It's easy for me to say or someone who looks like me to say, oh, we're moving too fast. I don't like this change. Well, yeah, you liked what was beneficial to you. I like what you said, Chris, especially about having the people at the forefront of the movement. And this makes me think of something I always ask myself when I just see like really blatant disregards and cultural insensitivity. I just start to ask myself, who wasn't at the table? It's so obvious sometimes, but it's not if you're in a place or workplace where you don't have to think about the decisions that are being made from that lens. Because in Chris's case, okay, he's a white heterosexual male. So he's not forced to think from the lens of a Hispanic woman or an indigenous male. So when these blatant, I mean, I recently had an experience with Columbus Day and just really just a horrible display of cultural sensitivity. It was, it made me like think, who in their right mind thought that it was a good idea to send out an inspirational quote from Christopher Columbus, <laughs> you know, and when you're an affinity group for a minority population, it was very discouraging. But I'll stop my, I'll get off my soapbox there. And Veronica, I'll let you chime in on my question. I think that one of the things that we need to really be aware of and pay attention to is who our audience is, right? And instead of starting to point out differences, I started to point out similarities. Or I'll start to point out things that help people when they're having those conversations to see common ground. You don't want to, and I, and I, I remember we used the word ally, and I'm very cautious in the player words that we use because in the military, if you have an ally, guess what you also have? You have an enemy. And so you don't want to create or say any words that are inflammatory, us versus them, but us, right? And so what has worked for me and served me well in the 100 and plus 80 culture assessments is to set the ground and have them set the ground. What do you have in common? We all want to meet the mission. We all want to be successful. We come from different backgrounds. And here's where we differ, but we still have the same goal. It is important to build the unity before we start pointing out, okay, well, look around the room and I'm the only female Hispanic, period. There's no other minorities in this room. If we're going to make decisions in the future that is going to reach out to all a diverse group, why are those folks not on the table? And why don't we have a bigger scope that encapsulates everyone? Mm-hmm. And I think the inclusion piece is the most important part. Not that, oh, I'm an ally, I'm in this side. It's basically, as a team, we're better together and we need to include everyone. It doesn't always work, but it has been successful for me to have that conversation. It's a change that's going to affect 80% of the population in African-American in this organization. Why is not one of them at this table even having an input? And you'll see the space of surprise. It's like they never even noticed that they never looked around the room and noticed what the demographic making the decision was. And Veronica, I really 
appreciate you breaking down the word ally like that, because I think in the industry, there's so many buzzwords and you just don't know what to use sometimes. So my next question was actually going to be, what does being an ally mean to you personally? But I would love for each of you to answer in whatever language you choose. We understand the concept that we're talking about. So what does it mean to you? Chris, you want to jump in? Yeah, I'll start by saying just at a high level what it doesn't mean. To me, it's not a mentor because people who are mentors want to be allies. And mentors, it's a one-way conversation. To me, allies do three things. Uh, Number one, they're a guide on the side. They're not an ally so that they can tell everybody they're an ally and so they can get all the credit for being an ally and they can be the savior. That is intolerable to me. The second thing that an ally is is someone who breaks down walls. But you have to see it, right? So this gets back to you have to see it, see it as a problem. And then you're going to break down walls which requires courage, which requires proactiveness. And you're going to find ways to make lives better for Blacks, African-Americans, people of different sexual orientations, people of different physical abilities, people of different minority statuses. So you're a guide on the side, you're breaking down walls. And the third thing is you're a sponsor and different than a mentor, different than a coach. It isn't about your wisdom. It's not about your experience. It might be about your place in the organization. If you're the type of person who can help someone kick a door down, And the only very, very quick analogy I'd give you is when I was a culture executive at an agency, I remember getting mad that a lot of my peers at the executive level loved calling themselves allies. And I would ask them, you know, quite bluntly, so what have you done? And they'd say, well, you know, next time we have a history month event, you'll see me in the front row. Okay. Besides showing yourself in the front row where you get a picture taken and then the director can see you in line of sight, what are you doing outside of that room? Oh, we do. We go to all the mentoring events. So the tail end of this was, It used to be that we would have photographers come to the mentoring events and you would have people outside the door that were trying to usher people in because attendance was pretty bad. At one point, I was like, nope, we're not having any more photographers because what I want to do is I want the director and everyone else to see the difference between somebody going to an event where they can be seen versus a smaller event where they're just there to sort of help people. And we might have had five or six people in the room. Wow. So you call yourself an ally, be proactive, be courageous, break down walls, be a guide on the side. And put your money where your mouth is or get out of the way. That is just, you know, powerful that when you took away the visibility of being an ally, the numbers shrunk. Interesting, interesting. Veronica? Well, for me, it has taken different form over time. I think some of the things have been similar to what Chris discussed, having a genuine interest in in having an understanding and seeing both sides and being a guide. In my case, I do a lot of mediation because a lot of people see me as neutral, right? They don't know which side, like, where are you in this topic? So able to say, can you see, and I learned this from Chris, by the way, well, can you see how the other side, and so being that middle person that used that conversation piece of, I understand what you're saying. I'm not blaming you for your point of view, but can you at least understand the perspective the other person is coming from and creating that I'm not blaming you. Let's all bring it down a notch and let's hear people. Because what I noticed with this is that a lot of people think, well, you're blaming me or you're blaming somebody else or there's this blame here and I don't want any parts of that. But where there's no blame, it is more like, what can we do as a team to move forward? It's, It's a lot better. And I think sometimes it's helpful to have folks that are just neutral. They're not trying to take sides, but trying to bring different perspectives together for the better of the organization, people, of course. And I'm not sure why would anybody think this is for personal game or be something 
better for them because at the end of the day, we are humans, right? And we want to connect and we want to feel value. And that's the reason why we want to be helpful as allies. But I've been told by both sides, and I'm going to be clear, you will never understand because you haven't walked these shoes. From all sides, I've been told that. Or different things like that. And not taking it personal and seeing, I understand what you think I'm going through, but I'm trying to get us all in the same page. And I think being an ally means to be that bridge, that connector for different ideas. And Veronica, I totally agree with you with what you're saying. I see it a lot. And I think the ability to stay neutral and kind of put yourself in someone else's shoes, that's cliche, but it's like a true skill. Chris knows this, of course, because he you know, facilitates and teaches people how to do it all the time. And though I do think it is a skill that can be learned, it's definitely not for everybody. And that kind of makes me want to piggyback, go back really quick to something Chris said about how an ally is also a sponsor. So what do we say to people? And I'm going to be honest, sometimes I encounter people who they really have great intentions, but because they have never had certain experiences, the fear is really there as far as retribution and, you know, how am I going to look if I sponsor this person or speak on behalf of this person? And for no other, I mean, the person that they're so-called being an ally for be perfectly fine, but it's just that kind of fear of the unknown because let's be frank, perhaps you've never had an experience of being marginalized or an experience of being discriminated against just for looking a certain way. So what do we tell those people who really have good intentions, but they let their fear and uncertainty about their ability to be a sponsor or an ally get in the way? So this reminds me of an article I wrote several months ago called What Happens When a White Person Talks About Race? And I wrote it because I was about to do a discussion that I was invited to. I didn't invite myself. And somebody sent me, one of my Facebook friends, and quote, sent me an email saying, I can't believe you're going to do this. And, you know, they were clearly scared. And I said, just based on my experience, women and minorities don't hate it when a white male talks about race. They hate three things, and rightfully so. Number one, consistency of character. Don't talk about race when it's convenient for you. And don't just talk about race. Do something. So you may feel like you've never experienced it, and I've never experienced it. But consistency of character says, if people see me talking about it, or more importantly, if they invite me to talk about it, it's because they see that I've taken action to genuinely sponsor people and I've taken action, encouraged to, you know. The second thing is realistic relatability. So just be honest and say, look, I don't know what you're going through. Or if you're going to say, I've been discriminated against, like I've had somebody tell me because I love basketball, I love 90s r and I've had someone say to me, I was facilitating a culture session where we always do song of the day. One of my songs of the day was High Five, I Can't Wait Another Minute. And I had somebody say to me during a break, you don't have to say pick black songs just to relate to us. Now, it was authentic, but I had to understand where they were coming from. So realistic relatability says, I'm not going to take offense to it. I'm going to try to understand where they're coming from. But also, when I talk about relatability, I will never say to somebody I understand because I don't. So they're tired of unrealistic relatability. And then the third thing, what I would tell somebody is, what is your desired end state? If your desired end state is to help them, then you're coming from the right place. If your desired end state is fame or your desired end state is somebody's got to do something, you probably need to take a couple steps back and figure out what that something is. But the consistency of character, the desired end state, and the realistic relatability, I would say, are first and foremost. Yes, realistic relatability. I love that. I cannot even count on five hands 
the number of times someone has attempted to relate with me or some of my fellow Black colleagues in an authentic way. And I think you hit the nail on the head. The key is to always be authentic. Veronica, what say you? Uh, well, I think Chris stole all my ideas. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but no, the reality is that he's a good instructor. I think he talked about authenticity and how you behave and model the behavior. It is not credible when you see behavior that, that is incongruent or doesn't align with what's coming out of your mouth. Yeah. And with a lot of leadership, with a lot of folks, when they say, well, well you know, diversity, inclusion, and treating people with respect, those are my core values. And then in the hallway, somebody watches you do something that is not congruent with that statement. You lost all credibility. So being consistent, like Chris is saying, being the same person, they walk the talk. Also, if you come from your heart and you are authentic and you're not faking it and you're not telling a lie, you never have to remember what you said. So being yourself, but being really invested on what's best for everyone helps out. I do understand the fear is clear. I have people come and tell me after they have speeches, I pull them to the side and I say, hey, these three things you said, the same franchise, these folks, and here's how you did it. I'm helping them out and they get panicked. Oh, should I just go back on the stage and say, I didn't mean it. And I like learn behavior, right? There are certain things that you just say or that you shouldn't say that is insensitive. So there is fear of behavior, but you should be authentic. So you're not afraid when you make a mistake. My boss will go and tell everybody I made a mistake. I didn't mean to say this is what I really meant. And I sincerely apologize. And because they know he's authentic, they believe him and they forgive him if he makes mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes. Veronica, I think you literally just broke down in a description what walk it like you talk it means. (laughs) So thank you, because that was the whole point of this episode. Uh, Before we get to the Dear Dr. A segment, and this really weighs heavily on me. You know, I've been learning a lot. I went to a conference this past year and there was a researcher talking about being the cultural identity expert. But don't fear, that's a whole nother topic for a different episode. But I do feel like a lot of times I'm kind of put on the spot or I'm expected as a young Black professional to have like some large part in this whole safe space ally thing going on. So I just wanted to know what you all thought about the role that marginalized people play in this whole thing. So are Black professionals responsible for helping people become allies? Are we supposed to be allies to other Black professionals? Like, how do we kind of unmix it all? Somebody give me a formula. (laughs) Maybe not a formula, but what do you think? (laughs) Uh, How do we unmix it all? (laughs) I know, it's a loaded question. I tend to think that there's four types of people in this space right now. So one person I would call a fire starter. And those are the people who start fires. (laughs) They will basically highlight something that no one else knows. And the perception that's happening right now is that minorities, women, people of the same have to be the fire starters because we don't get you. So we can't be the fire starter. Mm. The second type of person is a fan flamer. So the fire is already there. They just want to fan the flames, which isn't helpful, right? They feel like their job is just to make everybody see the fire, but they're not willing to sort of stand by it. They fan the flames and walk away. The third type is the extinguisher. They're not helpful either. They think they have all the answers. Let me tell you how to solve that issue. The investigator, which is the fourth type, is a person who's willing to look at the fire, figure out how it started and figure out how to resolve it. So I would answer your question to say, I think we need more allies and we need people, they call them bystander and sexual assault and sexual harassment training. We need more bystanders because they see the fire. 
They're just not willing to show it. But to Veronica's point, they're afraid to do it because A, they don't think they relate. B, they're afraid of retaliation. So how do we get them to be fire starters or how do we get them to be investigators, which are the two good parts, the two good types of people? Because fire starters are courageous. They're willing to highlight something that no one else is willing to highlight. And investigators are willing to look at it from all sides, not because there's always two sides to the story, but to Veronica's point, you're dealing with anger and fear. Somebody has to be the neutral person, and that's what an investigator is. So how do we get those people? I think two things. And one of them is going to be very blunt, although I'm not sure that I know a different way to talk. We have to, again, I talked about movements earlier. We have to highlight the movements because by highlighting the movements, you're highlighting the people within the movements. One of the great things I love about the younger generations today is they grew up around diversity. They grew up around inclusion. So it's not so new to them. It doesn't mean that there's no issues there, but they're being highlighted. I mean, even if we take it out of this conversation and into the young lady, Greta Thurlberg from Europe, who's being highlighted for doing something that people just aren't willing to do. So I think, again, we have to bring out the movements and we have to highlight the movements because that will highlight the people that are doing it and more people will be willing to come forward. Statistically speaking, I'll just tell you only 9% of any given workforce has champions. 85% of your workforce are culture scope. They see everything, they don't do anything about it. And they're not going to do anything about it unless they feel like it's a safe space to do it. That's a poor excuse, but it's just true. It's the human condition at play. We have to set a standard of what an ally is and what an ally isn't so that people know the difference. And when the organization can illuminate the movement and set the standard, more people will the woodworks. You're still going to have your culture vultures in the background. Those are the people who start the counter movements. But to be honest with you, they're the loudest, but they're only like 6% of the workforce. But they're powerful because they're loud and not enough sculptures are pushing back on them. Mm. Veronica? I'll just give you a quick example of how I became an ally without knowing or found someone to be my ally. Mm-hmm. And it was a Caucasian male and I was losing an argument. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was doing the right thing and I was in a room full of people that didn't look like me. And I was definitely losing and I knew this was the right thing to do. So I waited for the break and I approached the one person that gave me eye contact the whole time. <laughs> and we went and had coffee and I explained what I was trying to do. And I will tell you that that person became the strongest ally I ever met because they understood what I was trying to do. And he explained it to everyone else. And like a miracle, like I was speaking Spanish when I said it, and he translated for me, it worked. And the whole room completely understood what I was saying. So I say this to say that it's important that everyone is an ally, even to your own cause. And that if you don't have the venues to go and do the things that Chris talked about, be the fire starter, you can get to that person that can get that fire started and everybody else can jump into that movement that moves forward. So I do believe that everyone has a role in this movement, that everyone should be involved in one way and another. And if you feel, oh, I feel like scared that I can't do it, I'm not going to be quiet. I get to the people that can get the door open and then I can start being myself. All we need is one person to have a conversation. One. And I'll give you an example. I was in a focus group and there was one minority and we were talking about all the topics and we have 15 topics on the board and the person goes, I have a question about diversity. And it was a whisper. It wasn't even, you know, and I had to kind of put my ear and say, I'm sorry, you want to talk about what? And he says, diversity. And then every other person in the room that wasn't, he said, yeah, but you're the only person here that doesn't look like us. And it opened the conversation. The fear went away. It became a safe space right away, but it took one word. 
and it was a minority who said it. So I think that we have a responsibility of being allies to each other, to help each other, because it's for the good of the big, right? (laughs) Chris, the best interest of the group. I do want to be clear, from my lens at least, it is not fair that women and minorities have to be the scene set or the fire starters, if you will. But I agree with Veronica that and the only way we're going to get people who aren't of a protected class to be those people are bring them in and we have to bring them in. And we can't assume that just because they're scared that they have bad intentions or that they're not saying something they have bad intentions. We have to try to understand. But at the same time, this gets to the, you know, change takes time. I don't buy that. Change takes time. Give me a timeline. I think it's so important to, for everyone that will listen to this to understand that and I appreciate you, Chris, for bringing that up because marginalized folks have a lot of burdens to bear as it is. So having to always start fires, of course, is just another thing on our to-do list. And Veronica, I really loved your statements about everyone having a place in the movement. And, you know, sometimes your job in the movement or your role is not clear at first. And sometimes you are going to have to push yourself. But the willingness of wanting to cooperate and contribute, I think is very important. And I do want to say that I'm very happy to have both of you here. I intentionally did not ask two white folks to join this episode tonight because I see myself as an ally, quite frankly, you know, in a time when, and I'm just going to be honest, as a highly educated Black female who was raised middle-class English first language, the best educations, a lot of times I find myself acting as an ally for people who maybe English isn't their first language or maybe they grew up in a different class than I grew up. So I see that as my role in the movement because I know that I'm perceived a certain way because of my education, frankly, because of what I look like. I'm a lighter skinned Black person. I really see my role in the movement a lot of different ways. And this conversation has been excellent, powerful. I'm so glad we could have it. It is time to move on to the Dear Dr. A segment. Dear Dr. A, I had graduated with a master's degree and started working in a nonprofit at the entry level. I was the only person of color on staff at the time. I was doing everything including, but not limited to, grant tracking, managing contracts with vendors, managing paychecks and staff benefits, and everything in between. We were a small staff, but I had the widest range of responsibilities. My manager, who was a white man, was supposed to oversee my work but it turns out that he didn't know anything about operations. He would take my work and questions to the CEO and then come back to me with answers. It wasn't until later that I learned he was passing off my work as his own. In my first year, my responsibilities grew from doing associate level to director level work. I was being paid half of what directors were being paid and a third of what my manager was making. When I asked for a raise, I was met with resistance. What I was asking for was too high. But it was the same salary that the other directors are making. In order to get a fraction of what I wanted, I was told by the CEO that I had to, quote, prove myself, unquote, by managing a successful business merger with another organization. I don't have a business background, but I oversaw a merger that impressed lawyers and board members alike. I was then offered a raise that was much lower than what I had asked for and was promoted to be the first, quote, senior manager, unquote, instead of director. The next day, I was told to update a program associate, who happened to be a young white woman, to update her salary to the same level as mine and to change her title to senior manager as well. She had not asked for a raise and her responsibilities as an associate had not changed. I took the offer, but I regret that I didn't negotiate for more. 
Looking back on everything I did for the organization, I deserved way more than what I initially asked for. What this person wrote in, I feel like she's sharing a story in hindsight that a lot of us, minorities, protected classes, what have you, have encountered at some point. You know, I had a very similar story when I first came out of grad school. I was making very, very little money compared to other people who were in different races of lower education level, less responsibility. And I just feel like this is kind of ingrained. I would call this systemic, this fact of young Black professionals, we're speaking of specifically, not really having the negotiation skill, not because they don't want to learn it, but because it's not something that has been ingrained and taught to us, generally speaking as maybe with some other cultures. And so when I read this story, it really hit home for me. And so I just wanted us to discuss for a few minutes, what would we say to someone who's listening, who's currently in this type of situation? This person sounds like she's no longer at that organization. But what about someone who's facing this right now? You want to start, Veronica? I think I can. I have some slight different conversations that kind of resemble to people saying in comparison to the peers or to other folks that are doing equal work, I don't feel like I'm getting compensated. And one of the walls that leadership puts up, and I'll say leadership push back on, is that what discretion did you use? What is the roadmap that got you to that decision to say that this person who's doing equal work, you know, is going to get paid differently? And I think um, it's a lot easier for us in the military because it's driven by rank and not by the work. And then we have the pay band, you know, the GS. But the difference is if you have a roadmap as a supervisor, as a leader of what it looks like, the likelihood of that happening is less, right? So as an employee, I'll ask the question, this is my goal. You're mentoring, you're developing. You want me to walk into those shoes and be successful here. To be successful then I will have to feel like you're treating me equally, that my work is value as much as the next person. So what is the roadmap? What is the plan? And what is the expectation? I do think that there are times when people get taken advantage of. And as we could improve the reason why they're getting paid less, I can't tell you what the reason is. Some of it might be the quality of work, but are you giving your employees the feedback as to why you're making those decisions? And let me tell you, there's secrecy too, because in the military, at least in the government, you're not supposed to disclose your salary to the next person to you or your evaluations or your cash awards. So it's hard to find those spots where inequity, where discrimination is taking place. And when people do, instead of addressing the sentiment or the anger, I think they need to address the issue. And of course, my boss said, what is the metrics? Like mm-hmm. any boss, what is the metrics that shows that I am discriminating or giving less? Well, the metrics will be if this person is getting paid more and they are doing equal work, then what's the difference? And if I show you the metrics, then you should have the ability to answer as to why this is happening. But my only advice is address the issue first. Before you address anything else, it's very important that you say equal work. Before we go into, here's the demographics and here's the protected categories, address the equal work for equal pay, and then go from there. But if we put the differences first and the emotion first, they will defend it. Yeah. And we don't want that. Two things on that really quick before we get to Chris. I agree with you. I will say that I think it's unfortunate that we're always tasked with having to put our emotions aside. And I'm not a super emotional person. 
But I do feel like when it comes to marginalized individuals, we're not allowed any space to feel any type of way about inequities or when we feel like we've been wrong. That's a pet peeve of mine. And another thing, Veronica, just really quickly, just to pull it back to the walk it like you talk it episode. So in this story, in this situation, obviously the person who perhaps should have been her sponsor, her ally, was really just taking credit for her work. So in this situation, what would an ally or sponsor have looked like? Well, I don't think that that person was a leader at all because a leader shows how you develop people. And by developing and showing how good her work is, he himself would have looked a lot better. And I think that's the point that was missing here. Instead of saying, look how great I am, is I have such a great employee and I'm such a good leader. Look how well developed and how professional she is. It's a win-win situation. And I don't think that took place at all. And it's very unfair. And I wanted to point one more thing out. When you talked about how people of color, sometimes they call me emotional all the time. I get it. If it's a guy, it's passionate. But if it's me, I'm emotional. I was told by my boss one time, one of my bosses, I can't deal with emotions. I can't fix emotions. So don't bring me emotions. Mm -hmm. And I'll say to that, when I expect you to fix the root cause of that emotion and the root cause of that emotion was an action and the action there was not equality. And then he was like, oh, okay. So wait, okay, you can't fix the fact that I'm angry and upset, but you can fix the fact of why I'm upset. And that was something that someone else did. And it's bad behavior automatically changes attitude. Way to refocus a deflection (laughs) and maybe just honestly not being well equipped to deal with certain things. So Chris, go ahead. So I would say first and foremost, I never think that poor negotiation skills is the issue. This is similar to when someone says to me, I need the business case for diversity. Well, you didn't need the business case to hire the workforce in the current composition you have. So if I have good negotiation skills as a white heterosexual, able-bodied male, and I'm able to get 20,000 more than you, even though your education is higher than mine, what that really tells me is that when the leadership looked at me, the leadership valued me differently. This is a self-worth issue and it's a value issue. And yes, there's confidence issues, but confidence issues exist because of equity. Someone once said to me, well, they just come into college angry. Well, first, who's they? Oh, you're generalizing. Got it. And that's what racism is. Okay, got it. Thank you for that. <laughs> Second, let's presume that there is some anger there. Where did that anger come from? I don't know. We grew up, his daughter grew up three blocks from my daughter. Did they grow up in the same neighborhood with the same opportunities, with the same health care, with the same access to schools? No, then shut up. To me, it is not a negotiation issue. Maybe it's a self-worth issue, but what's at the heart of that self-worth issue? When you grow up, and everything you walk by is dilapidated buildings and liquor stores and cops and you're in school and your classmates are going on a field trip and you have to stay in the classroom, yeah, you're going to develop confidence issues. You're going to somehow develop self-worth issues. We're not willing to address that. We just say they didn't know how to negotiate. Well, if you valued them same, to Veronica's point, they wouldn't need to negotiate, but you don't value them the same. And the last thing I'll say is, is I facilitated a discussion with a nonprofit executive director where this very thing happened. Not the exact story as the young lady told it, but this very thing. And it took me three questions to get him to admit that he had some racism issues. Do you know what the three questions were? Do you believe diversity inclusion is essential? Yes. Do you believe it's essential to your mission? Yes. Do you believe it's your job to ensure the mission? Yes. Do you believe people, if given the same opportunities, have the same potential and thus deserve the same salary? Pause. Mm. Questions, sub-questions. Well, you know, I still think they could get there. But what you told me, I don't care where you don't think that they're at an equal playing field. They could get there is your mindset. It is not a negotiation issue. 
It is a self-worth issue. Yes, to some degree, it's a value issue more prominently. And oh, by the way, what would an ally do? An ally would help them with their self-worth. Mm-hmm. An ally would make them feel included the second they came on board. And by the way, an ally, back to my see it, see it as a problem. When the salary was being ginned up by HR, would look at that and say, it's not fair. We should not bring this person on any less than this other proactive. It's sponsorship. And Chris, I appreciate your setting the context for why some of these self-worth issues and confidence issues may exist. And just on a final note, and maybe looking towards the future as we wrap it up, I always struggle with explaining to people how these things become institutionalized and how they can stay in the system for generations. Just looking at me from the outside, I really have no reason to have these type of issues. You know, my mom is a retired nurse. My dad's been a college professor since before I was born. I used to go to private school. You know, I really have no reason, just looking from the outside, to for someone who doesn't understand systemic racism and discrimination, I have no reason. And people have actually told me that, and not just white people, but people of color too have told me, well, what do you know about it? And so I just think everything that we've talked about tonight, the understanding the seeing things from different perspectives. There's a lot of work to do, but I really appreciate the work that both of you have done and continue to do. And I hope we can continue to have these conversations, but unfortunately I'm going to have to kick you out the conference room for now. (laughs) (laughs) But Chris, Veronica, it's been a pleasure and I'll see you on the outside. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Take care. 